six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. It's our summer pledge drive here at WORT. We are hoping to have five generous donors call in this hour to help us wrap up a successful pledge drive here at Volunteer Powered Community Supported WRT Radio in Madison. So we'll be hearing more about that over the course of the hour. I have my fellow pledge driver, dri- pledge rapper here, and uh, former WRT producer Rochelle Wilson, and um, we'll we'll be talking more about pledge drive. But first, we're going to get to our guest. We're very honored here today to have with us State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. Jill. Underly, the school year is coming to an end, and the Wisconsin Legislature's Joint Finance Committee is preparing to release its proposed 2023-2025 education budget. During the first half of the show, we'll focus on the state of K-12 public education and that budget process with Dr. Underly. And during the second half, I'll focus on new data about one of the challenges facing young people today, both in and out of school, social media. I'll be talking with Pew Research Center Research Associate Emily Fogel about the center's new survey of American teens about their experiences with social media. But first, public education in the Wisconsin state budget. At the legislature's Joint Finance Committee public budget listening session in Eau Claire in April, Superintendent of Public Instruction Dr. Jill Underly urged the committee to approve Governor Evers' proposed $2.6 billion increase for public K-12 education. She said, Wisconsin districts do not have enough money, and when schools are underfunded, when schools are hurting, you know who gets hurt the most? Our kids and that is unacceptable. We'll dive into the ways that schools are being underfunded, what the impacts are that that has had, and what the budget process is going to be like here with Dr. Underly, who was elected State Superintendent of Public Instruction in April 2021. Prior to that, she worked in public education as a teacher and administrator for more than two decades. Welcome to A Public Affair, Dr. Underly. Well, thank you very much for having me. Good afternoon, everybody. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Dr. Underly or an observation about the state education budget, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I want to differentiate quickly that number for uh, calling in to the show is different than the pledge number at 608-256-2001, extension 1, to pledge, or you can pledge online at wrtfm.org. So, Dr. Underly, I'd like to start off our conversation today just by having you give us an overview of what you see as the most urgent needs of students, educators, and schools in Wisconsin today. Yeah, great question. Um, So, coming out of the pandemic, so now uh, it's 2023, we had three school years, more or less, I suppose, um, with the pandemic. And when you look at all the needs, we put those highest priorities in our budget. We had, you know, certainly making sure that school districts had spendable revenue, so money, you know, so that they could focus on getting, you know, teachers and salaries and, you know, upgrading their facilities, whatever it is, you know, that will help kids um, learn, right? So that was the big piece. Next was the special education reimbursement. So Wisconsin is very low in that we, you know, we reimburse school districts about 
30 cents on the dollar for special education costs. So the districts are left with that other 70 cents or 70% of the cost. Um, and, you know, that takes a big chunk out of their budget. So if we were to increase the reimbursement rate, that would be more um, spendable dollars that school districts had. We also looked at mental health and the fact that a couple things here, um, we've found a successful way to fund mental health through the Governor's Get Kids Ahead initiative. Um, but coming out of the pandemic, we know that mental health, even before the pandemic started, we knew mental health concerns were on the rise, especially anxiety and depression among our kids. Um, but certainly the pandemic didn't help in that. And kids are in schools, and that's the best place to, to serve them. So we put money into mental health, and that would be the first categorical aid, you know, for mental health in, in Wisconsin history. So looking to serve kids there. And then the other piece of it was school nutrition and nutrition programs like school breakfast and school lunch. We're seeing um, that is an, that has a positive impact on kids' learning um, and their mental health. And we've seen other states who are able to seamlessly start that after the pandemic as well. And we thought Wisconsin, that should be high on our priority list too. So those are the big things. Um, and there's certainly a lot of other things <laughs> that our schools need. We'll, we'll get into those in a little bit more detail here in a minute. Um, but I'd like to take a moment also just to, to highlight how these issues arose. What factors contributed to the growth of the needs for mental health resources in school or nutrition resources, um, finding more money for um, catching teachers' salaries up and, and paraeducators, et cetera? What's been happening over these past few years that has led these ne needs to really uh, grow? Yeah, so um, if I back it up to the budget that was the last budget, 2021 to 2023, so we're coming to a close on that last planning budget, um, schools didn't get an increase. Um, the legislature said two things here. They said, you know what, you're getting federal pandemic relief dollars from COVID, so that should be sufficient, whereas that money was intended or earmarked by the federal government for schools to get out of the pandemic and to provide programs to kids like tutoring, things to help them um, get more support, especially around literacy and math. Um, it was also meant to help with teacher retention, but we never got to that in Wisconsin um, because we, we had to use that money for general operating expenses. Um, the legislature instead did put some money into public schools, but they instead put it into property tax relief. So schools never saw the money um, from the last biennium budget. So going into this next budget, it's a big ask that we had um, because this is the this was our post-pandemic budget. Like if we wanted our schools and our kids to come out of this better than when they entered it, in 2020, this is what we needed. And so that's why we put those pieces in there. And the other thing that we're seeing um, a rise in, yes, certainly mental health. Um, we're seeing that we need to be addressing these needs. We need to see, um, we, we need to address teacher recruitment and retention. Um, we need to address nutrition. Um, we have our communities instead having to step up by raising their own taxes through referendum. Um, and that's a mixed bag. I mean, communities are 
different. And so in absence of those state dollars going to fund those schools or that percentage dwindling over the past decade and a half, um, our local communities have had to raise their own taxes. And, And that's a tough ask, especially when prices for everything has gone up. And so, yeah, there's a lot of needs and this budget was intended to help provide relief in those areas. Let's talk about one of those needs in a little bit more detail, and that's the ongoing teacher and staffing shortage in public schools, everything from classroom teachers to bus drivers. Um, How can this need be best addressed, both in the short term and the long term? Talk a little bit more about that, please. Yeah, I mean, certainly we need to support our educators. I think that's always a given. Um, You know, during the pandemic, they were seen as um, local heroes because they were providing instruction, they were changing their practices, they were, you know, helping, you know, deliver meals, and they were delivering materials to kids and getting technology out. Um, And then something changed, you know, like, as the pandemic was waning, um, you know, people were stressed out in these positions. Um, A lot is asked of our teachers, and a lot is asked of them at a time when they're, you know, they're told to do more with a lot less, and less support, less funding, whatever it is. Um, So we have a teacher retention problem. So we need to make sure, you know, this is a short-term thing. You know, we certainly could be paying our teachers more. I mean, certainly to show them how much we value their work. Um, It's one of the key reasons we need to increase general aid and revenue limits so that our school districts have enough funding to pay their teachers. Um, You also see, like, the other elements of our school workforce, bus drivers, food service, custodians, um, you know, and, and they're paid generally less than counterparts in other um, other industries in the state. And so when a local company is hiring a person with a CDL, which is what bus drivers need at $26 an hour, we're going to have a problem recruiting and retaining bus drivers when we're only paying them 16 to $18 an hour. So there's a lot there. Um, so short term, we need to pay more, but we can't necessarily unless we have more funding and we're kind of locked in to how much we can spend. So we need to increase our um, general aid. Um, the other piece is the recruitment piece. Um, we have some programs that are grow your own programs. Those are certainly great opportunities to build on the strengths of our incredible school staff that I aforementioned, um, like the support staff. Um, to make sure that we have these high-quality, dedicated teachers in front of our kids. Um, student teachers, this is another uh, area. We have, we have people going into teacher education programs to become teachers, but when they become student teachers, it's another financial um, challenge because they're not paid. I mean, these are essentially unpaid internships where, and in many places, it's not a community where they live. So they're commuting. They may have expenses plus they're paying you know they have to pay their college tuition um so it's a huge financial obligation for individuals to go into student teaching so i mean there are many things but long term i think if we were to implement some of these short-term solutions you know around pay around you know supporting um the staff we could certainly see a long-term benefit by making sure we have highly qualified passionate individuals in front of our kids 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jill Underly, Wisconsin Superintendent of Public Instruction. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We are also on our last day of Pledge Drive here at Community Supported Radio, WORT, and I'm going to turn it over now to my colleague, colleague, Rochelle Wilson, to tell us a little bit more about the Pledge Drive. And we're looking for five donors this hour, right, Rochelle? That's right. That's right. We're looking for five of you to call in. And it's so simple. And yet you'll make our day. Be one of the five. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or go online to wortfm.org. That's always an easy way to make a pledge. And we'll be able to see it right away. And thank you on the air. So yes, we're looking for five donors this hour. It's going to be easy peasy. If I do my math correctly, I want to say that's like one person for every, I don't know, eight minutes. <laughs> I'm bad at math. But it, we can do it. We, we can do it. And I really believe in this conversation that Douglas is having today about education. He brings these important topics to the airwaves. And this is the last day of on-air pledge drive at WRT this summer. So we want to hear from you and hear your support of a public affair covering educational topics. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 1. Go online to wortfm.org. And we'd love to thank you this hour. Thanks, Rochelle. I'm going to turn back to Dr. Underly now. We have with us Dr. Jill Underly, Wisconsin Superintendent of Public Instruction, just for the first half hour today. So I want to give uh, you as much time as we can. Um, Dr. Underly, can you tell us a little bit more about um, student mental health needs? And you mentioned the governor dedicating for the first time in his proposed budget uh, aid for mental health resources in schools. What does that entail? What does the um, governor's budget envision for supporting students with mental health needs? Yeah, so you know what the what the budget does is it takes the Get Kids Ahead initiative, excuse me, makes it <clears throat> makes it permanent um, by providing more than two hundred seventy million dollars to help meet the mental health challenges that our Wisconsin students are facing, and it's a you know it's an evidence based program. Um, so it would be based on reimbursement. So if a school district hires an additional counselor or they hire a social worker or they implement a program among their elementary kids, um, they would you know, submit the, the claim to DPI and we would reimburse it. Um, when I have traveled throughout the state of Wisconsin and I talk to parents, I talk to teachers, and I've talked to kids themselves, the number one thing they respond with when I ask, hey, what's on your mind, what are you most concerned about is, mental health. Um, You know, I hear that urgency in their voice when they talk about mental health, and it's time to act on this now. Um, So the 2021 Youth Risk Behavior Survey showed Wisconsin students students are dealing with mental health challenges more than ever before. I mean, one-third of our high school students are reporting depression. One-half are reporting anxiety. One out of five students has seriously considered suicide in the previous year. And almost one in 10 actually tried. And it's higher for other groups, students of color, girls, LGBTQ plus students. Um, and so we need to you know, have access to consistent funding in our schools so that they can support these communities. And it needs to be enough so that it can make a difference. It can't be a competitive grant. It can't be... Um, 
you know, a few thousand dollars where it can't make a difference. It needs to be enough, certainly to fund at least one staff member, and it needs to be ongoing. We can't, we have, we have to establish this as the baseline going forward. Like I said, we know that the kids need these, these services and they need this help. Where are the kids? Kids are in schools. So let's put these services in our schools. Dr. Underly, I can hear that urgency coming from the students in, in your voice, and you've described public schools in Wisconsin as, quote, at a tipping point. If the governor's education budget proposals are not approved, uh, I, I know there's going to be choices, and some of them may be, some of them might not be, but if this vision in general is not really endorsed by the legislature, what would be the consequences for the state's public schools in your view? Well, and that's just it. It's like we have to, as a state, think about what is our threshold here, right? What can we tolerate? What can't we tolerate? Um, and our schools have been making do for, you know, on less for, for over a decade. Um, and they cut here and they cut there and they hold off on other things. And, um, you know, they go to referendum and they try to pass it. And some communities are successful, some aren't. Um, but what we see is this widening of inequity, you know, and I think about it as I drive down the highway or I drive through different communities, you see communities that are able to provide for the kids in their communities and their teachers through higher salaries, better facilities, um, you know, making sure that they have a qualified teacher in front of um, in front of their kids and then you go into other communities where they haven't been able to pass the referendum and it's unfair that we place this burden on our communities it doesn't mean that those communities love their kids any less Um, it's certainly it's just frustrating that we have to make it a choice um, when in the reality it's it's our obligation as a state of Wisconsin to fund public education for all kids ages 4 to 20 Um, And our schools do the best that they can, and it's unfair that they are put in these impossible situations where they have to make these choices. What it sounds like you're describing uh, so well in talking about inequity is that by not uh, fully funding or adequately funding schools over some time period now, the state of Wisconsin has essentially decided or is committing to a path of educational inequity. Yeah, it, it really is. And like I said, you know, it's like you just read the paper and you you hear of the communities that, you know, they're certainly able to afford to pay, you know, or to increase, let's say, starting salaries for teachers, or they're able to afford a new program or add a new wing um, onto their high school for, you know, welding or career-oriented um, um, curriculum. Um, or hire additional literacy coaches and reading teachers in their elementary building. And then there's other communities. They don't have that, you know, and you see it happening all over the place because they have, you know, declining enrollment or they have, you know, just certainly other, other impacts in that, in that area. And at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, certainly other communities are able to make these investments, and the reality should be that the state of Wisconsin is making these these investments, and they're simply not. And to continue with uh, thinking about consequences, what is the consequence 
for those inequities. You know, some people might say, well, you know, these people over here, they're not my problem. It's a sort of cynical point of view. But what are the larger public consequences for the whole state if we continue down this path of leaving many children behind? Yeah, so public education is certainly the most, um, it is the it is the largest piece of the budget. And it's for good reason. When you think about the role public education is, it's the economic driver in our state, right? It's educating the next workforce. It's educating the next um, leaders, you know, the individuals who are going to run for our school boards um, or leaders in our states. They're, it's educating the next generation of parents, uh, teachers, engineers. And if we have an uneducated workforce, I mean, you certainly can look at what you know, what could happen as a result of that. Um, You certainly need to also look at people who have high quality education and they graduate from high school and they go on to post-secondary, whether it's tech college, um, four-year college or military or, you know, apprenticeships. They have longer, healthier lifespans. And when we don't invest in our people at the very beginnings of their lives, you think about the repercussions as they get older. We have, you know, higher um, crime rates, for example. Um, when we have um, less healthy people, that's a that's a financial burden, you know, on you know the state, but as well as like on our hospitals and and our own pocketbooks as well with insurance rates. So it's really um, that whole adage that um, uh, you know. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like we, that's why we're saying, look, we need to invest in nutrition. We need to invest in full day 4K. We need to invest in child care. We need to invest in mental health. It's all these things, you know, that allow people to be um, better off so that when they enter school, they're, they're able to focus on learning how to read and how to conquer the basics, find their passion, and then grow up to be healthy fulfilled Wisconsinites. That's Wisconsin Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. Jill Underly, here on A Public Affair. We have just a couple minutes left with you, Dr. Underly, and you so eloquently describe the long-term and broad uh, significance of public education there. What do you think at this particular moment in time, as fractured as the body politic is these days, what would help the general public better understand the tipping point that schools are at? Let's say they never set foot in a, in a public school, don't have children. Uh, what what do you think are the ways that uh, you and others who care about public education can reach out and, and help people really understand the the crucial point the schools are at right now? Yeah, we certainly, I mean, what I would say is, look, we need to support our schools and support our teachers. Um, you know, even if you don't have kids in school, somebody supported you, right, when you were going through school. They paid their taxes so that you had these opportunities and, you know, facilities and programming. Um, and our public schools are the cornerstone of our democracy. They're the lifeblood of so many of our communities. Um, and as I said before, you know, they educate the next generation of Wisconsinites. And, you know, our our teachers need the support as well. I mean, there needs to be this understanding that schools have lots of things that they've had to deal with that they've never dealt with before and with a lot less funding. And so we need to support our teachers and we need to support compensating them more. We need to support, you know, 
compensating them that's on a level commensurate with their education and their experience with those in other sectors. Um, you know, and we also need to support them to enter this profession and to stay in it because it's, you know, as I said before, it's the most important profession and we need to treat it as such. And finally, I would just say, look, we need to continue to advocate for public schools and public school funding. We need spendable revenue. We need to do the things that we know work, like the mental health support, the special education reimbursement, and the nutrition program, because we know it'll help all of our kids all of our schools, our teachers, and our communities. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I've been talking with Dr. Jill Underly, Wisconsin Superintendent of Public Instruction. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Dr. Underly, and thank you for your work. Thank you so much. It was totally my pleasure. We're going to transition now here to spending the second half of our show on an important issue facing young people today and new data out about it from the Pew Research Center. But we're going to spend a few minutes first connecting with you listeners today about what WRT is undertaking right now. It's the last day of our summer pledge drive. And... Former WRT producer Rochelle Wilson is here with me in the studio to reach out to you all with me and talk about the importance of what we do here at WRT. I'll turn it over to Rochelle. Well, thanks, Douglas. I'm ringing this bell because we have a pledge to announce. Thank you so much to Susan from Madison for giving to the show this hour. Susan is a new evergreen donor, which is absolutely amazing. This is a wonderful way to support the station with monthly donations. Um, And so you can call to set that up today at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. Follow in Susan's lead. Her favorite shows are A Public Affair, The 6 p.m. News, and Melon Floyd. So thank you so much, Susan. We couldn't do what we do here without you. And I was just thinking, listening to Douglas, how often is it that you get to hear your elected officials talking on the air pretty much uninterrupted for 20, 30 minutes at a time, sometimes upwards of an hour at a time? What other outlet provides that opportunity? I can't think of one right off the top of my head. And so if this is something that matters to you and you want to show your support for this show this hour, we need to hear from four more of you to meet our goal. And again, Douglas, can you give out that number? The number is 608-256-2001, extension 1, or you can donate online at wortfm.org. O-R-G. And I, I wanted to just take a minute to, I don't know, I guess brag about Douglas because I feel like he is new to the station this last year and he has just been absolutely doing an amazing job picking up the torch for Mondays, covering topics like climate change, poetry, labor, education, journalism, all this stuff in the local news and our local community that you just can't hear anywhere else. So I want to give props to Douglas for putting these shows on. Props to the entire team here, to Jade, uh, who produces, to Andrew on the soundboard. Today we've got Catherine on the phones and Amy as our receptionist. This is a big team to put together this show. There's a lot of labor. There's a lot of love that goes into making it, but there's also a lot of community support. We couldn't do it without you. So pick up your phone this hour. Give us a call. 608-256-2001, extension 1. 
Thanks, Rochelle. Oh, really quick. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, we do have another anonymous donation. Thank you so much, Anonymous, for donating online to uh, Public Affair. And their favorite shows are all news and public affairs. So, you know, can't ask for anything more than that. So thank you to Susan and Anonymous. Be one of the three who calls in next to help us make our goal. Thank you, Susan and Anonymous. And thank you again, Rochelle, um, for the shout out. I love it that I get to spend half an hour, an hour with my guests discussing issues really in depth. I don't have to cut them off for frequent breaks. We have the opportunity to engage in complex questions with context, nuance, examples and stories. That's why I do this, uh, because I believe, like Rochelle, that you can't find this other places on the radio covering both local, national, international issues of importance and we're going to transition right now to another one of those with another amazing guest uh we're talking into the school year today and an issue facing young people today undoubtedly that has been in the news a lot lately is the influence of social media a revealing recent study from pew research center asked american teens and their parents about their experiences with and views about social media here to talk about that study's findings is dr emily fogels emily is a research associate working on internet and technology research at the pew research center much of her recent work has focused on teens digital lives the tone of online discourse and the digital divide welcome to a public affair emily Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, so tell us about this Pew study. Who was surveyed, when, and how? We'll start with the basics. So Pew Research Center surveyed over 1,300 uh, U.S. teens between the ages of 13 and 17 last spring, so spring 2022. And we wanted to get a better understanding of the online lives of teens, especially their experiences with social media. It's in the news all the time. People are talking about it. And because social media is such a hot button topic, we wanted to be able to bring teens' voices into this uh, conversation and really understand what their perspectives and experiences were. So what results stand out to you in this Pew Research study, Emily? What new information is emerging from it? So today's teens are highly digitally connected. For example, 95% have access to a smartphone and 90% have access to a desktop or laptop computer. And these devices afford teens easy access to the Internet. Some 46% of teens say they're online almost constantly. And 35% of teens say that they are almost constantly on at least one of the top five online platforms we asked about, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat, and Facebook. But we need to understand more than just the amount of time teens are spending on these platforms. We need to hear about the experiences they're having on them. And we saw majorities of teens say social media helped them feel more connected to friends, like they have social support in times of need, like they have a creative outlet and that they're more accepted. But we also saw that about four in 10 teens said that they felt overwhelmed by the drama that they encountered on these platforms. Did your study ask specifically about the link between social media and mental health? We were talking in the last half hour with uh, Wisconsin Superintendent of Public Instruction about the mental health challenges facing young people. And there's been a lot in the news and an increasing amount of, of studies done on the links between mental health and social media use. Um, where does your study pick, fit into that picture, this Pew study? 
We didn't ask teens directly about mental health. We did ask them about whether social media had generally a positive or negative impact. We asked them questions about whether it made them feel more accepted, whether they felt worse about their lives. So we didn't ask them directly, you know, looking at anxiety or depression. We asked more generally about these broader concepts. And we see that in general, teens say that for themselves, social media largely doesn't have a positive or a negative impact on their life. But more people do say that it had a positive impact than a negative impact for themselves. Though they are cognizant that there might be issues and they're more likely to say that other teens may be having negative experiences. Only 9% of teens said that social media had had a negative impact on them personally, compared to 32% who said that they felt that it might be having a negative effect on people their age. So I'll ask one follow-up uh, to that in terms of perception of the impacts. Uh, what did you find in differences in social media experiences and perception of its impacts among uh, people of different genders and races? So the perception of impact, like I said, largely a neutral kind of feeling that teens had towards it. But we do see a few differences here and there uh, regarding the likelihood of saying the positive or negative, though the biggest finding really is that difference between teens themselves versus looking at people their age. One of the kind of interesting things with that is that we do kind of assume that there is a lot of this negative valence, but really only 9% of teens overall were saying that. Uh, Let me just pull up really quickly. Yeah, uh, the gender differences on that weren't the major story, really. It was the difference between teens themselves versus looking at their mm-hmm. peers. Were there gender differences in, and, and racial differences in terms of using different platforms, frequency of use, other kinds yeah, of differences in experience? See, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> we definitely see gender differences and racial and ethnic differences in the platforms they're using. So when we look at these differences... Again, let me, sorry, my screen decides to freeze as I'm trying to pull up these numbers for us. We see that teen girls are more likely to use TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram, where boys are more likely to use YouTube, though, again, that is a majority of uh, all teens are using YouTube. They're also more likely to report using Reddit, for example. And did teens report online bullying at all or changes in their self-perception through social media? Or is that um, something you're comfortable sort of um, thinking about in terms of the implications of this study? So we do see that cyberbullying is a common experience for teens online. 46% of American teens have personally experienced at least one form of cyberbullying And teens are particularly likely to say that their physical appearance was likely the reason they were targeted for online abuse. We see that older teen girls stand out for their experiences with harassing behaviors online, and they're more likely to face at least one of the cyberbullying behaviors asked about. 
uh, overall, as well as more likely to report experiencing certain individual behaviors than younger teen girls or teen boys of any age. You're listening to A Public Affair. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Dr. Emily Fogels, research associate with the Pew Research Center. We're talking about a new Pew Research Center study about teens, American teens' perception and experiences of social media. We're also doing our last day of summer pledge drive here at WORT uh, Madison, and I'm going to turn it over to Rochelle to tell us about our latest donation and uh, tell you more about why and how you can call in to help support WRT. That's right. I've got an exciting announcement. We had our third donor for this hour. Thank you so much to Tom for calling in and supporting the show with your generous gift. Tom's favorite shows, well, he says, like them all. Labor Radio, A Public Affair, 6 p.m. Local News, and All Music. So I think that really runs the gamut. We appreciate you for calling in, Tom. And you, too, can join in the chorus of support that we're receiving this hour by calling 608-256-2001, extension 1, or going online to wortfm.org we've got susan anonymous and tom on the list of supporters this hour and we need two more of you to call in 608-256-2001 extension one online at wortfm.org and you know you can also pick up an amazing thank you gift that shows the rest of the community that you support wort we'll talk a little bit more about that later i was thinking i would like one of those hats that's right (laughs) um the, the bucket hats, yes. you know, and then people can see you around town and know and know what community you're a part of. And needed during this uh, unexpectedly hot, uh, early kind of summer, 100%. early early heat wave we're having these days. Um, we'll tell you more about Pledge Drive here at the end of the show, but we're going to return to our conversation now with Dr. Emily Fogels from the Pew Research Center, who's focused on teens' digital lives. And there is a new study that we're talking about from Pew Research Center about teens' experiences of social media and the impacts and uh, it has on them and their perceptions of it. Emily, what for you, what conversations about teen social media use does this study really raise? When you look at this data, as somebody who's immersed in, in the research on this issue, what strikes you as most important and what would you like to know more about? I think a really interesting part of this research is how we're able to kind of explore the complexity and nuanced uh, experiences that teens are having. Oftentimes the messaging that at least I encounter online when people are talking about this are the negative sides. And so we're able to ask teens about those negative experiences, but we're also able to ask about the positive. And so we're able to get this more complex and fully formed rounded portrait of what teens are experiencing. And we saw that majority of teens were saying that using social media helped them feel more connected to their friends, that it helped them feel like they had a support system they could rely on in difficult times, like they had a creative outlet, and even that they felt more accepted when they were using social media. But we also see that for some teens, it makes them feel worse about their life. They feel overwhelmed by the drama and they feel like their friends are excluding them. So there is this complexity that we just really need to understand that it's not wholly good or bad. It has 
a variety of things that teens are encountering when on these platforms. And you mentioned early on in our conversation, building on that notion of complexity, that frequency is something that this new study looked at, the frequency of social media use. Um, and it varied all, a lot, but it sounds like there was a significant proportion of teens who are virtually all the time on social media. Um, tell us more about that bit of data and any kind of nuance behind it. And maybe speculate a little bit if you're comfortable doing so on on uh, what the implications of that are. So as you mentioned, this study highlights the notable role that online platforms play in teens' daily lives. We saw that a majority of teens use YouTube and TikTok every day well, about half say that they're using Snapchat and Instagram every day. And as I mentioned before, 95% of teens said that they were almost constantly using at least one of the top five online platforms. So again, YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook. Though Facebook only saw about uh, a fifth of teens using it daily. So not as uh, frequent of a platform that teens are frequenting. So it just really highlights that these are platforms that are a regular part of teens daily life and just something that we really have to be paying attention to as we continue researching this moving forward. Are there significant research questions that you would like to see a new study there at Pew address or or elsewhere researchers address? So we are planning on focusing on teens more regularly moving forward. In fact, we're very much interested in looking at beyond social media, what are teens' digital lives encompassing? So we're very interested in looking at screen time more broadly and understanding what teens are doing beyond that social media element. We're also interested in video games and what teens are doing with some of that recreational time in the communities and the types of experiences they're encountering there. I think it would be really interesting in the realm of social media to also just keep exploring it. It is constantly changing. The environment can change so rapidly in that social media space. We see platforms like TikTok go from not being a platform to being a top platform because it launched in North America in 2018. And now we see that two thirds of teens ever use TikTok. So this is just something where new platforms come onto the scene so rapidly and we can see other platforms that we asked about even just a couple years ago, no longer existing. And so it's just an ever changing environment and we just need to keep an eye on it and keep exploring where those you know, new and exciting uh, edges are. TikTok is a good illustration of how rapid things are changing, right? Because you said as it came on the scene very rapidly, but then in in some contexts now, uh, you're not legally able to use it, right? Like I know that's true um, in certain state and government uh, contexts, right? Where TikTok is, is not legal anymore in the United States um, because of the concerns that have been raised about it. So, um, how do you design studies that really help navigate th how rapidly things change when you're studying social media? 
My apologies. I lost you briefly there. Yeah, hey, hey Douglas, this is your producer, Jade. Yep. I accidentally, uh, Emily didn't have sound for that last question. Can you oh, okay, sure. ask it again? Yeah. Um, Emily, <laughs> I was asking about uh, the great example of TikTok and that you, that you were just talking about and how rapidly it came on the scene, but how rapidly also it may be disappearing from access for some people, right, as legal concerns are raised about TikTok. How do you design studies around something that's changing so rapidly? Or how do you, how do you think about that when you're thinking about how to ascertain what students' experiences of these platforms are? Trying to design research around an ever moving uh, touch point is definitely a challenge. One of the things that we try to do is stay on top of the news cycle, be paying attention to that. But also, for example, with our last study that we did, uh, we conducted focus groups with teens to really understand what was going on in their world, what was top of mind for them, and just also in preparation for our new research reaching out to folks, trying to find out what seems to be the experience among people who have their, you know, boots on the ground in the trenches, either raising teens or talking to teens themselves, just to really try to understand what's going on because we don't want to be doing research that is irrelevant to a group. We wanna make sure that these are important, uh, useful data points that we're bringing into this conversation and not something that people look at and go, well, this is no longer relevant because this shifted. But again, it is a challenging thing. And when legislation moves quickly, sometimes those data points, you know, miss relevancy by just a, a couple weeks. And that can be a struggle. Another question that kind of fits into that uh, set of uh, ideas about change is the difficulty in measuring people's perception or teens perception of what the right amount of time is to spend on these platforms and i know that that's something you looked at in this study what did teens say about um whether they were spending too much time too little time the right amount of time and what do you take away from that so we did ask teens about how much time they were spending on these various platforms, but then we also asked them to kind of give us a judgment of whether that felt like too much, too little, about the right amount. And we see that about 55% of teens say that they feel like they're spending about the right amount of time on social media. However, we do see that 36% of teens judge that they are spending too much time on social media, which becomes a larger question of, well, if they feel like they're spending too much time, how do they feel about cutting back? And we see that about 54% of teens say that it would be hard to give up social media. And in talking to teens in focus groups, what we heard is that this is the place that they're going to communicate with their friends, to you know work on school projects. So the idea of trying to navigate their social media time can be a very challenging one because it's not solely a recreational thing. This is their way of connecting to others, to doing schoolwork, to being part of just a you know citizen in their community. 
I definitely got that sense uh, in talking to my own students this past year, in particular about their social media use while we were reading and discussing a book called How to Do Nothing, um, which looked at the role of the attention economy in, in people's lives and social media in particular. And students ran a little experiment with trying to abstain from social media for a while. And many of them reported... Uh, it making them think about or reflect on whether or not they should cut back. But many of them also reported what you're talking about, Emily, this uh, notion that, uh, well, that's going to make me feel more isolated, right? Or it's going to make me not feel like I can be connected to people. And that's the opposite of what I really need to be working on right now, which is connecting with people. So it's paradoxical or, or complex, as you've said throughout the interview. Um, do you have any takeaways that you'd really like to share with the audience before we wrap up here? I think some of the big takeaways is, again, that this is such a nuanced subject matter. It is not wholly good or wholly bad, and different teens have different experiences. We do see how different teens might be experiencing different things on the platform. So, for example, teen girls are more likely to say that you know, they feel overwhelmed by the drama on social media, for example. But again, that is not a majority. That is just that they are more likely than teen boys. So it is such a nuanced portrait of what is going on. And we also know from teens themselves that they don't feel that their parents necessarily have an accurate understanding of what their experiences are on these platforms. So it's important to talk to teens and really understand what their experience is, because an individual is not equivalent to the larger trend. They could be an exception to the rule or they could be, you know, one of the many experiencing something. So really just trying to understand, open those lines of communication to really understand what's going on for those teens in your life so that you can be speaking to them from where they're at rather than making assumptions about their experiences. That's Dr. Emily Fogels, research associate with the Pew Research Center, talking about Pew's recent study about teen social media experiences and perceptions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm here with Rochelle Wilson in the studio to make our contribution to wrapping up the summer pledge drive here at community-supported WRT 89.9 FM. Rochelle. We are down to the wire, folks, and we have three donors this hour, but our goal is five. So we have a mere four minutes to hear from two of you. I'm going to give out that number because I know you're picking up your phone to dial it. It's 608-256-2001 extension one, or you can quickly go online to wortfm.org. Whether you call or whether you go online, you'll be able to see the array of thank you gifts that we have. We know that's not why you give you give to support community radio but hey it can't hurt to pick up a nice pair of for example binoculars did you see those douglas no. there is a pair of w-o-r-t binoculars um that you can choose as a thank you gift and i was thinking of you douglas because i know one of your earliest shows was about birding yeah the bipoc birding club they were great amazing yeah. 
And it's it's just it's shows like this where you can hear from experts, where you can hear from elected officials, where you can hear from journalists, educators. Some of the smartest people in our society are coming to join us on the show and sharing their knowledge with us this hour at 12 o'clock every weekday. And on Mondays with Douglas, if you want to show your support for that, give us a call at 608-256-2001 extension one or online at wortfm.org. It really is a community. I used to produce this show and I am now I find myself back here as a volunteer because I love it so much. And I think it has that hold on a lot of people when you say Douglas. That's been one of the big joys for me, Rochelle, uh, in my just about a year now of really getting to know WRT is how WRT creates community. I see that in the events I go to, uh, Wartstock recently, uh, conversations when I run into people, friends who've either heard me or, or just talked to me about all the shows that they love on WRT. It's a way of bringing people together and, and showing that people throughout this region uh, really care about the kinds of conversations we have here on A Public Affair, but also the great music, um, the international multilingual programming that is really hard to find elsewhere, multi-ethnic programming really there's nowhere else you can find that kind of variety in language and culture on the radio that's absolutely true and i'm also thinking about the 6 p.m news which several of our donors this hour have mentioned i know that one of our big priorities at wrt with this money is to get new field recorders so that our reporters our volunteer reporters here at wrt can go out into the community and i really think that that makes such a huge difference to just have people on the ground seeing what's going on and bringing it to our listeners here so if that's something that you want to show your support for, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 1. I can just personally say I went out um, with another WRT volunteer for the November elections, and it was absolutely just amazing to hear what people, what mattered to them as they were there at the polls, what concerned them. And we aired those interviews just later that day here on WRT. So it really is community from start to finish. That's what you're supporting when you call in. Absolutely. And I... I um, really have come to have a new appreciation as I've seen the behind the scenes uh, production of the daily news here at WORT over this past year of what an incredible resource that is and what an incredible job they're doing really on a shoestring with bringing you local news stories. And that's some of the feedback I've appreciated most here is hearing how much people appreciate a forum for conversations about what's happening in our communities here in Madison and in the region. So give us a call uh, as we wrap up here, 608-256-2001, extension 1, to show your support for WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes. I'm your Monday host for A Public Affair. Thank you, Rochelle, so much for joining me. And I wanted to give a final shout out to our three all-star lineup of donors this hour. Thank you to Anonymous. Thank you to Susan. Thank you to Tom. We want to thank Catherine on the phones, Amy, the receptionist. And our engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director Sholly Pittman. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for a live edition of Madison Bookbeat with host Andrew Thomas talking to John West about his new memoir, Lessons and Carols. With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it We come and never be reported With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media